Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why, Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. On today's episode, we'll be exploring hatred with philosopher Barrett Brogard. Every episode of Why Radio begins with a monologue that prepares the way for the unrehearsed conversation we're about to have. I do this because it introduces the listeners to a background they might not be aware of, it helps the guest know where I'm coming from as an interviewer, and it helps me focus my own thoughts so I know what to ask. Today we're taking a philosophical look at hatred, and while I was all set to write down a torrent of ideas, it turns out I had nothing to say. Much to my own surprise, I hadn't given hate much thought at all. Here's what came to mind. Hate is bad. It is destructive to oneself and others. It inspires anger and violence. Sometimes it comes from injustice, but more often than not, it comes from ignorance and fear. Whatever the case, hate is something we must overcome because it leads to darkness. You know, fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. It seems that the most sophisticated thing I had to say about the subject had already been uttered by Yoda. I guess this isn't all that surprising. Western philosophy teaches us that emotions are irrational, that they come from a spontaneous place we have little control over. Our feelings and our reason are said to work in opposition, not together. And while they might reveal what is in our heart, They might also just be passing fancies that will go away if we ignore them. Plato thought we should control emotions like a charioteer controls a horse. The Stoics thought we should contain them until we didn't have them anymore. Kant thought they undermined morality. And Freud thought that they were often deceptive and led to neuroticism. If this is what we're being taught, why should we dwell on our emotions at all? They only reveal our weaknesses to others. Of all the emotions, curiosity, anger, fear, desire, sadness, disgust, whatever, hate is usually regarded as the vilest. It has no redeeming qualities, and the worst among us are saddled with its name. Hate mongers and hate groups hate crimes. When we mention love-hate relationships, we might as well admit to having multiple personality disorders. To admit that we hate is to tell the world that we are irredeemable. But truth be told, the last few decades have seen a tremendous growth in the philosophy of emotions. Combining a more fluid conception of reason with new frontiers in cognitive science, scholars have begun to cast doubt on the caricature of emotions the history of philosophy has foisted upon us. Maybe it will turn out that emotions can evolve or integrate with reason, or that they have evolutionary purposes besides fight and flight. And if so, maybe hate isn't irredeemable at all. Maybe hate is informative and useful. At least this is what today's guest will argue, in part anyway. She will explore the full spectrum of kinds of hate— that which should be attended to and that which should be defeated, and we'll do it by connecting hatred to other emotions that also get short shrift in our thoughts. For me, then, there is something nice about coming to the discussion with a blank slate. I really like the idea that I'm both filling a hole in my knowledge and finding out that something I thought should be excised could actually make me a better person. Wouldn't it be great if every part of our experience could inform our moral point of view? Wouldn't it be a relief to discover that we're not corrupt by design? I'm Jewish, not Christian, and I have never felt comfortable with the idea of original sin, but I too have felt the weight of being a human being, of being the only creature on earth that hates. If we can identify good hate and bad hate, 
Maybe we can heal those hostile rifts that divide us by color, religion, and nationality. If we can distinguish between justifiable and unjustifiable hatred, maybe we can figure out how to educate away abuse, misogyny, and exploitation. If we can articulate a lexicon of hate, Maybe we can look at those who deserve to be hated and communicate to them why they might want to change their ways, why they want to be better, more empathetic, more deserving of our affections. This is all utopian, of course, but if our current world is built on the assumption that emotions and reasons are opponents, then who knows what we can create when we accept that they are partners instead. And now our guest, Brad Brogard, is professor of philosophy and director of the Brogard Lab at the University of Miami. She's the author of three books, including the upcoming Hatred, Understanding Our Most Dangerous Emotion from Oxford University Press. Britt, welcome to Why. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to participate, share your favorite moments from the show and tag us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is Why Radio Show. You can always email us at askwhyund.edu and listen to our previous episodes for free at whyradioshow.org. So, Britt, why is there so little philosophical work on hatred? It's a good question. There's, uh, there's been a lot of interest in emotions in recent years, but uh, contempt has been, been discussed a little bit. Uh, and hatred, to some extent, has been discussed in the, in the form of articles, but I haven't seen um, a full-length uh, book um, on, on hatred written by a philosopher uh, until now. So that was what sort of got me interested in, or maybe I, I could say more than what would... Uh, fill an article. Maybe I could say, um, maybe there was a lot to say, and I, I figured out that there was a lot to say about about Hayesworth. Do you think that there's something about the subject itself that didn't motivate people to say a lot, or do you think it's just this is what we were up to in the pathway of philosophy, and we just hadn't gotten to it yet? I think you said it well in your introduction that hatred uh, is it has one quality to it, right? It's, it's bad. Um, that, that's the, the, uh, the view that most people have. And if that's the case, then there's not much to, to write about. Of course, you could write about it from a literary point of view. Then you could go through various works where hatred comes up, right? Starting with the ancient Greeks and so on. But what would you say about it um, if you wanted to speak about um, hatred as an emotion, as a philosopher, if you think that well, hatred is bad and that's it, it's uh, it's one of those emotions that just are irrational and that's it. Then there's not much to say about it. So, what makes a philosophical approach different? I mean, you you mentioned literature, right? We 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 know novels and movies and poems and plays and even works of uh, uh, musical works that that deal with hate as a subject. But that's about the experience of hate and the consequence of hate. What makes a philosophical discussion about emotions philosophical as opposed to say literary or or something else? There's, of course, an overlap between those, but the philosophical part of, of uh, the discussion of hatred would involve um, looking at different aspects of hatred and providing um, arguments for why hatred has those uh, aspects, for example, uh, whereas, say, a literary um, critical interpretation or literary analysis of a work that involves uh, hatred would 
it could involve some of the same arguments, but it would be grounded more in the in the text itself. So if you're a history um, history of philosopher, so a philosopher who looks at, at historical works, right? Then some of the historical works that that um, English professors or literary critics look at would might be the same that you look at, and so in that sense, there could be an overlap. Um, but we are sort of more focused on the argumentation uh, and um, making a point based on, you might call it logic, but it, of course it's not always logic in the deductive form that we use in philosophy. So let me let me pull this thread a little bit. In, in the middle of the book, you end up talking about a bunch of different um, emotions and, and, and diagnoses, let's say narcissism. And you look at the DSM, the psychological handbook that helps psychologists and psychiatrists identify narcissism as a clinical problem. Um, what's the difference between the way that a psychologist would articulate what narcissism is to practitioners or cl uh, clinicians and the way a philosopher would articulate what narcissism is in a book or, or in class or, or in a discussion with their students. H how are those presented differently? So first of all, if you're a psychiatrist, you would go strictly with the, um, with the manual, right? So is um, currently fifth, the fifth edition. If you're a psychologist, you are, you could be interested in, 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 um, in the manual as well, but you're usually interested in, in extremes, in this case, an extreme in the normal population. Um, the philosopher might be more interested in um, in some of the consequences. So those could be the moral, uh, the normative consequences, the moral consequences, some legal consequences. So one question that is discussed in the book is the question of whether, uh, to, to what extent, um, a disorder like narcissism is more of a moral disorder than a clinical disorder. This is not to say that every personality disorder is uh, a moral disorder, but there's this specific group of, of disorders. And in the book, I'm mostly talking about uh, the extremes in the normal population. So narcissism as an extreme in the normal population, is that more of a moral disorder than uh, a clinical disorder. Of course, it's also a clinical disorder because it's defined that way, but is it a moral disorder um, more so than some of the other disorders described in uh, DSM? What does that mean? What's the difference between a moral and a clinical disorder, and why is that important uh, for us? It has various consequences. Um, there is the question of whether we can control our emotions. Um, but we also very well know that probably to some extent that we can control our emotions. Um, I'm saying to some extent, because I'm not saying that you can make yourself happy right now if you're in a bad mood uh, or if you're thrilled about something that you can make yourself unhappy. But we know that we, if you're angry, you, you, can, um, you can control your emotions to some extent. You can maybe, on occasion, you... you catch yourself overreacting, but we also have that, that, that old uh, thing we, we, we uh, tell ourselves to, to count to 10 or to go to another room if we are angry, for example. So there are certainly ways in which we can control our, our bad emotions.
um, when they're inappropriate. We also know that uh, we have a tendency to react um, less in a less controlled way with the people that we are close to. So if you are in a meeting with your boss, for example, you are less likely to start uh, screaming at him um, for something that you disagree with. You're much more likely to express it in a calm or in rational sounding way. So clearly there's an extent to which we can control our emotion, not just in the, in the long run, but also in the short term, right here and now. Uh, and so if, if, if a disorder like narcissism, for example, is a moral disorder, then there are aspects of that disorder that are actually chosen. And if you look carefully at DSM uh, and not just uh, at the criteria, because as a DSM actually is not written just according to the criteria, but also according to um, some of the explanations in it, you will see that the way that, that the psychiatrists are looking at it is that some, of, some aspects of narcissism is actually chosen. So it may be that the psychopath, for example, um, is uh, sort of biologically deficient in empathy um, but the way that narcissists are described, even in the clinical sense, um, it's, it's that they have sort of lack, they choose to not have any empathy, for example, for people in certain kinds of situations. Now, that's not to say that, of course, that is both a biological and a socially developed aspect of narcissism. But if there is a moral aspect to it, if there is something that, that they actually are acting badly, uh, partially on purpose that does make a difference to whether we would hold them responsible whether we think that they can uh, control uh, what they're doing and legally speaking it might also have consequences so so i mean this this notion of being able to choose being a narcissist or not or at least being able to choose to act on it or not is really interesting does it follow then that if it's a moral disorder, we can identify the person as being a bad person, but if it's a clinical disorder, uh, the person is an illness and isn't blameworthy? I mean, would that be one of the distinctions too, or is that taking it too far? So, of course, we can't just um, look at it in, a, in that black and white way, but there is something to that. So, legally speaking, we already have that distinction um, in the law. So, if you... Um, if you have a psychosis, a true psychosis that gives you a hallucination, so it makes you hallucinate, um, say, people that come up to you to ask you, say, a tourist come, comes up to you and asks you about directions to some place, you have a hallucination that they're actually attacking you and, and with a knife, let's say. Um, this is just something I'm making up as I go along here. Um, and then in, in your mind, you are in self defense, you, you are actually in self defense killing that person. And that happens on multiple occasions. Tourists come up to you and ask you for directions, but from your perspective, because you're hallucinating, hallucinating because you have a, a psychosis or psychotic illness, you're hallucinating, you're seeing them attacking you with a knife, you're killing them in self defense. Okay, in that case, if we could really figure out that that was what's going on and it's not just something that you're making up, 
then uh, it seems that you're not responsible because in your world, from your perspective, what you are seeing, um, what your brain is making up in inside uh, your mind, so to speak, sounds like there's uh, someone sitting inside your brain. Of course, there's not. But if whatever you, your, your world picture is, uh, someone is attacking you and you are acting in self-defense. So in that case, you would uh, perhaps you could use legal insanity as a defense. Now, you cannot use legal insanity as a defense in many other cases where you have some control over it, where it's not about you thinking, oh, I'm doing the right thing here, right? In the case where people are psychotic, they're in some sense, sometimes thinking they're doing the right thing. Whereas in other cases, certainly the narcissist uh, knows according to psychology uh, research in psychology knows that they're doing something bad when they're doing something bad, when they're putting people down, for example. So I, I, I really want to pull this thread a little bit because I, I find it fascinating. And um, you, you've mentioned legality a bunch of times. And so one of the questions that I have is, is whether this is one of your primary concerns. I know that later on in the book, you talk about hate speech and things like that, where, where that's relevant. But when we talk about hatred, we often talk about hatred in people's hearts. We talk about um, people being hateful even if they don't act on it. And so there's still that moral dimension that's separate from legality. And so how much in your work on emotions do you use the, the sort of moral evaluations, the evaluations of goodness, the evaluations of character, whether it's sort of the, the, the Kantian, you know, um, universal morality or sort of a more virtue ethics or something like that from Aristotle. How, how much does, does do the emotions that we have in have, the, the emotions that we both feel and express have moral content that are independent of the legal and institutional frameworks that, that, that we have? Is morality important here, or is that just is that a, a whole separate question? No, morality, of course, is, is, uh, is very important. And of course, we know that the law comes apart from, from morality. Um, sometimes it happens to coincide. Um, of course, morality is um, the, my primary interest uh, in some sense with respect to emotions because we can't really uh, speak of emotions having direct legal consequences because that depends on, on society and so on. Um, but yeah, emotions uh, have moral consequences, but there's also uh, the element of rationality. Um, so I already going back to um, my work that I have um, completed many years ago, I have tried to take issue with the idea that emotions are, are not subject to um, the assessment for rationality or irrationality, right? So emotions Can you explain not... what that means? I'm sorry to interrupt, but can, can you explain what that means? Because I know in philosophy that's something very specific, but a lot of our listeners may not know the debate. So what does yeah, it mean yeah, yeah. for emotions to be... Subject to rationality or not? So, um, so let's start with how we think about it in ordinary life. Um, so, you might have someone, uh, a friend, who says, "Oh, uh, I'm afraid of flying, so I always take my car when I go somewhere." 
And then you might just say, well, but that's irrational because look at the statistics. There's actually a much greater chance of dying in a car accident than in a, um, than if you fly. Um, okay, so so there you already told your friend be, that, that the friend was irrational uh, on the basis of being afraid of flying. So fear here is deemed in this particular case as irrational. So so this is this this is something that we most people agree with and this is something that a lot of uh, philosophers would agree with as well when it comes to um, other sort of emotional uh, states like love and hate uh, hatred and contempt and so on then there's um, a lot more disagreement about whether you can have uh, say irrational love or or rational love or irrational well, irrational hate is, is probably what people think um, applies to all hate, but, but can you then have rational hate? Can you have rational contempt? Um, so, so it's sort of um, what we mean here is that, is that something, um, rationality as I think about it is, is linked to your own um, well-being in some sense. Uh, it might not be directly linked, but it's linked to your own well-being, whereas morality is linked to the well-being of others. So if you think of, of um, irrational love, for example, uh, that would be love that uh, is bad for you, whereas immoral love would be love that's bad for others. So morality is primarily about others, whereas rationality is primarily about um, yourself. But of course, they... they they are connected to each other because there's also um, the question of uh, practical rationality, which is uh, rationality related to what you should do, which of course again relates to um, to what is moral. So, so um, when I talk about uh, love, we could or hatred for that matter, we can ask the question: Is it is it um, is it rational? Um, is, is it moral? And we can sometimes draw the distinction between whether is this something that's healthy for you or will help you uh, live well to to have to be to, to to feel hatred in a certain situation, say. Um, and is it is the hatred you have is that um, damage damaging or neutral to other people? That would be a moral question. When we get back, we'll start talking about hate specifically. We'll talk about the family of emotions that you have to elaborate on in order to explain hate. And then we'll start talking about the hate that is destructive and then those uh, instances of hatred that you think have uh, redeeming moral value. But before that, we'll take a break. You're listening to Britt Brogard and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We'll be back right after this. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower. 
with Why Philosophical Discussion in Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We're talking with Britt Brogard about hatred and a philosophical exploration. And as we were talking about the connection between rationality and choice and the emotions, I kept thinking about the current discussion about depression in our society, that that one of the things that folks who are depressed or who advocate for folks who are depressed say all the time is that the way that our culture handles depression isn't very healthy. People will say, you just got to stop being depressed. Just get out of bed. Just, you know, get over it. Just stop. Stop being sad. And there is a really wonderful, especially among the younger generation, conversation about ways in which to assist and help folks through depression, which is an illness. There's an analog between that and the discussion of hatred. Our culture is full of examples of people who are just saying, just stop hating. Turn the other cheek. Um, get over it. Uh, you know, walk a mile in someone else's shoes, right? You have this this notion that hatred is just something that you could stop doing, right? And that suggests that hate is both very surface and also very manipulable. So, Brett, I want to ask you, in your research on hate, do you think that hate is something that we give too much power to that we could overcome if we wanted to, or is it really deeply uh, intertwined with our structures and our culture, and really it has a lot more power over us than we like to admit? So there are at least two aspects to to that question. Um, we talk about people um, who have narcissism, an extreme in the normal population, for example, there, um, there's a certain hate proneness. Um, so at, at a disposition to, to hate, or in this case, perhaps it's, it's more contempt looking down on people. Um, in this case, it's, it's part of that person's personality. So of course it would take more to completely change it. Uh, and then there's, uh, there are people who are, who are, who hate um, in, in certain circumstances where it may or may not be justified, but it's not something that they're prone to do. It's not something, a disposition that they have. But then there's the, the hatred uh, that's discussed uh, in, in media all the time, um, especially, well, right now too, but also before the coronavirus. Um, and that was uh, the, the, the hatred in the population, uh, the the increase in the number of hate groups uh, that we see uh, in the population and so forth. And, um, and of course, in, in, in that case, uh, we can't tell the hate groups and that wouldn't help to tell the hate groups to just uh, stop hating because that's the sort of very cause that unite their groups. Um, so, so that's not the way to deal with, um, group hatred. Uh, so, so, so there, uh, so there are two parts really to this question. Are we talking about personal hate or are we talking about group hate? And if, if we're talking about personal hate, then there are ways that you can sort of step back and evaluate whether, um, you are actually justified in, in hating, um, or whether you're not justified in, in, in hating. Um, with respect to, to hate groups, uh, you're actually hating um, a group of people. Um, and 
and I'm not talking about a group of people uh, that consist of, of three of your, uh, say, uh, ex-boyfriends or something like that, right? It's, we're talking about a group of people like all women or all Jewish people or all Muslims or all black people. And obviously that's uh, always irrational, right? Even even uh, an extreme case where you can say, uh, well, shouldn't we hate all um, Nazis, right? So Nazis, the German Nazis um, leading up to and, and during um, the Second World War. Shouldn't we hate all Nazis? Well, uh, there are some examples where where some uh, Nazis were actually celebrated by Jewish people later, right? So, so even then, even if you took an extreme example where you take an extremely uh, a group of extremely evil people like the Nazis, the German Nazis, uh, there are examples there where uh, some people are officially Nazis because they were a member of the Nazi uh, party, but they were actually doing good. Um, and saving Jew, Jewish people, um, so in, so so group hate is always uh, irrational, and that's why we need to distinguish between personal hate, which can occasionally be rational, and group hate, which is never rational. And and I I, I want to follow up on that in a second because in the book you also use the term critical hate, which is a very negative kind of hate. But you did something in the process of answering the question in the book which is, for many people, really culturally radical, which is, you said, there is some form of justifiable hate. For many people, hate is always unjustifiable. It's always defensible. It's the worst side of human beings. What do you mean by justifiable hate? How can hate be justified, and why would we want to... Celebrate's the wrong word, but, but why do we want to maintain that idea uh, as something that's useful for us? Yes. Yeah, so, so to to think about uh, whether hate is ever justified. So as I as I said, it, it's only justified. It can only be justified in the case of personal hate, um, because hating a group that's um, consists of members you, you you don't even know the members of of that group. Uh, plus, you usually hate groups if you do because of some superficial features like their skin color. So let's go back to personal hate. Um, that's when I talk about um, hatred sometimes being a justifiable emotion. Um, let's compare it to, to anger um, first. Let's talk about anger. Suppose we, I were to say, and some people do say this, that anger is uh, not justifiable. You should never be angry. Um, that uh, probably most people would, would disagree about with that because anger serves a certain purpose. Um, sometimes you're un it's unjustified if you're angry, but sometimes somebody uh, steps on your toes, so to speak, right? Sometimes somebody does something to you that they shouldn't have done. And you are reacting emotionally, uh, sometimes in a justified way with anger. Not anger that leads to fighting, or not anger that leads to revenge, um, but anger that lets them know that that was not okay what they did. And so, anger in some sense can help to maintain certain norms in society, right? So if nobody got angry at anyone, um, they, then um, we probably would would 
be worse towards each other. So in that sense, anger can be a good thing. So why would hatred be uh, a good thing? Why can't we just do with anger then? Um, and there, I think that, that hatred does um, something that anger does not. Anger is directed at something that someone did. Um, so, for example, um, it could be that uh, you agree to uh, meet up with uh, an old friend for uh, dinner, and the old friend, your old friend, never shows up for dinner. Um, and you get angry okay so that was like something that you're not really um you're not really thinking that you're a friend not at this point anyway you're not thinking that your your friend is a bad person you're probably thinking okay something come, came in the way the person should have called but it's something that's probably relatively easy to forget but you might still get angry now um a person even an old friend um, might get into a pattern of behaving badly what would that mean well that would might mean that the person might become um a bad person right they might start developing a pattern of bad behavior if it becomes a pattern um not just like not meeting you for dinner but a pattern of, of putting people down for example or um, criticizing them uh, whatever the reason, then we are starting to talk about not just the person doing something that was wrong on one occasion, but also that the person has a certain dark side to them or have developed or are developing a dark side to them. And so hatred um, in that case uh, can or is directed not just at one specific thing that they did wrong, but also is is sort of telling that person that that's not okay. That kind of dark personality that they're starting to develop, um, that, that is something that they should uh, look at and perhaps uh, overcome in some sense. So there is a role for hatred in that sense. So is hatred then a holistic emotion in the way that you're using uh, anger isn't, that when you hate, someone you don't just hate what they do you hate who they are you hate the character you hate what they've become i have in mind and you mentioned this also in the book the, this idea of you know hate uh the sin but not the sinner right is 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 hatred holistic in a way that other emotions aren't and therefore uh has a a, a level of condemnation which is more robust and more complete Yes, that's exactly right. It's it's holistic. Um, so you are, in some sense, uh, hating the sinner. But by hating the sinner, um, and not just the sin, you are uh, not necessarily hating them forever, right? So that's also um, a mistake that some people are making when they're thinking about hate, that that's a, a permanent emotion. It's not necessarily a permanent emotion, but it's a holistic emotion, as you say. But it's not necessarily permanent. So, so you can hate someone, and most people, even if they're not willing to admit it, are probably very familiar with that. That's why we talk about love-hate relationships, or hating your your partner, uh, or hating and loving your partner. Um, and and uh, when when that when that happens, it's it the hatred is is realistic, but not permanent. It doesn't have to be permanent. Um, in some cases, uh, it might be permanent, right? But 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 that certainly would depend on um, 
on the other person or the person that you hate. If you hate justifiably, you also are not using hate to uh, retaliate against the other person. So that's something I argue against. So retaliation, I argue, is not justified. Or even having a retaliatory uh, attitude is not justified. So I, um, I want to I hold off on that a second because that's a, a really rich and interesting conversation. I want to be able to focus on it. In the book, in the book you give some very graphic examples or powerful examples, I should say, of uh, stuff that we know about, including a famous case of a father who locks his daughter in the basement in Austria and, and makes her his um, prisoner and sex slave for years and years. And, and, and there is some sense that in, in, in that case, we understand and, ju- and, and, and the hatred of the daughter of the father is justified. And there are other instances where people are victims of crimes or victims of manipulations or victims of bullying or victims of, of um, people at, at, at the work who, who, who try to you know, destroy you or undermine you, that, 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 that those things are justified. Is, it, is the justification purely for, I don't know, the pedagogical purpose in the sense that what I mean by that is, is hate is justified by the potential change that it can inspire in other people, or can hate be justified simply as a state uh, that a person is allowed to be in because they're a human being? I mean, does, does hate have to be instrumental or can hate be a good in itself? Yeah, it can occasionally be be good in itself. Um, so it can certainly be good in itself in the sense that grief can be good in itself. So we sometimes tell people that uh, who have lost, it doesn't have to be someone to death, it can be, also can be that they have lost a relationship or they have lost a job and they are grieving and we're telling them, well, you should allow yourself to grieve, right? And of course, you shouldn't continue grieving for, say, five years, and that becomes pathological. But you should let it run its course. And the same goes for, for hatred. So if you somebody really treated you badly to the point where, um, where that was hateful, genuinely hateful, um, then hatred, not hatred that makes you think about retaliating against the other person, um, but but I think that hatred can be helpful um, for you as a person uh, for a while. Then, of course, there comes a point, just like with grief, that you would have to let, let go. But you have to let it run its course. And people who are attacked in various ways, right, where somebody who is raped, say, um, they are they entitled to go through a period of hatred towards the rapist? Yeah, not only are they entitled to do that, uh, it would probably be healthy to do that. Um, to because hatred um, gives you, in some sense, power uh, because it sends a message, even if only in your own head. Because uh, if somebody is raped, they might not ever um, see the rapist again. But uh, it sends a, a message in in their own head to that that um, that that was not okay to for them to be to treat um, the victim uh, the way that they were treated right and that 
uh, that was terribly arrogant to do that. And it was a, the hateful behavior uh, was a way of saying, oh, I'm superior to you and I can treat you badly because um, I'm just entitled to do that. So by hating, you can sort of reverse that scenario and say, well, no, in fact, you are not superior to me and you are actually in some sense below me. Um, I'm actually um, a valuable human being and that's a part of what, what hatred is telling. Uh, if not the world, then you, you're telling yourself that uh, by hating. Uh, so hatred sends a message. And um, in terms of the instrumental part of hatred, uh, it, there's another uh, instrumental part of hatred. And that is also, of course, the, um, the way that hatred, of course, can prevent us from uh, doing certain very hateful things because uh, being hated is, is a very uncomfortable um, state to be in. So in that sense, there's also a um, sort of uh, preventative uh, aspect to, to hatred. But, but that's certainly also sort of, um, a, yeah, in, in, in a way you can compare it to, to grief, like instead of grieving a loss, you can hate for a while. You can hate what someone did to you and that can actually help you get back on your feet. Is, is hate um, a binary? And I, what I mean by that is, 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 is it, do you either hate or you not hate, or can there be lighter forms of hate? And what, what I have in mind is there's a book um, about the rivalry between the, the UNC Chapel Hill Tar Heels and the, the, um, the uh, Duke Blue Devils. And the title is great. It's, it's um, to, to hate like this is to be happy forever, right? And it's, you know, sport hatred is, is, is a classical form of cultural hatred, but there's a lightness and, and, and even a self-deprecating aspect of it. Is it wrong mm -hmm. to use hate in those terms? I mean, is that just, uh, does that disarm and not take the concept of hate seriously? Or is there really a spectrum of hate and we can use hate in that way, even if it isn't, as virulent or as, as intimate an emotion as, as say, uh, hating your victimizer or something like that? I think you can. Um, in, of course, in some cases, it might be more of a metaphor for another for other emotions, um, especially in sports. Uh, but you certainly can have milder forms of hate um, and hatred in in the case where people say, yeah, I love my partner and I, and right now I hate my partner um, because he or she did that uh, to me. Um, in, in that case, uh, presumably your hatred is much, um, it's not as strong as hatred towards someone who really violated you. But um, in terms of the degrees of emotions, I think that uh, all emotions, uh, common degrees, love, common degrees. Uh, so we love some people more than others. Um, and we can hate some people if we hate anyone. We can hate uh, some people more than we hate others. We can hate very little uh, and hate a lot. So, no, it doesn't have to be all or, or nothing. Um, but there are certain features that would have to be present. And as you put it, it's... Hatred is directed at the person when it's personal hate, right? It's directed at the person and not just at what they did. So 
by that I also mean it's it's also directed at their motives, right? So you're in some sense not when you're hating, you're not just hating what they did, but also hating the person um, for the motives that went into um, doing what they did. Whereas if you're angry, you might not be care at all about their motives. So, so before we transition to moving from personal hate to group hate or critical hate, what are the conditions that, that you think make hate unacceptable on the personal level and what makes hate uh, acceptable? You, you alluded to um, uh, revenge or retribution. Um, what, what, what are the conditions that make hating morally acceptable? I think that um, there there are two two things that make the make it acceptable uh, unacceptable. Um, if you hate if you're hating someone and you're sort of plotting revenge or retaliation, um, then you have gone too far. Um, if you are uh, this is a related concept. If you are um, thinking of the other person as less than human. So if your hatred is dehumanizing, then uh, you have gotten you have gone too far, right? You 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 should correct that. So the when I'm talking about critical hate, um, I call it critical hate because it's not dehumanizing, and it's not the kind of hatred where you're plotting revenge or thinking about how can can you actually get back at that person. Uh, with the critical hate is more, um, I use critical because it's more uh, meant to be a, a way of criticizing a person through your emotions. Uh, and so perhaps correcting them or perhaps helping yourself, perhaps nobody is, the criticism may never reach anyone, right? Nobody may actually hear your criticism, but then it might help yourself heal. Um, and the, But the dehumanizing hatred uh, is when you actually have gone so far that you um, don't consider the other person even worthy of the mi minimally decent treatment, right? So if you go so if you have gone so far that you uh, hate someone so much that you would not even um, you would not even uh, if you could easily uh, remove them from a street where a car is coming, they, they say they fell on a street, uh, you see a car coming. Um, this is your enemy in some sense, but your hatred is so deep that you're just standing there uh, where you could easily have removed them and saved them from, the, from being run over by the car or, or the train or whatever uh, the scenario is. Um, in that case, you're, you, you care so little about them that you actually no longer considering them human, really, right? You're not even considering them worthy of the minimal decent uh, treatment. In that case, of course, you've gone too far because your hatred has become dehumanizing. So, um, so if you, I mean, even when you hate someone, um, you probably should be willing to to do what do something that is minimally decent towards them. Uh, and that's where where the philosopher um, Immanuel Kant says that you should never um, treat someone as uh, a mere means to an end, 
right? So you should treat them as an end in, in themselves. It doesn't mean that you can't treat them as a means. We treat um, people as means all the time. Like like if you go to your hairstylist, of course, the your purpose is to get your hair cut or styled. Um, and so in some sense, you treat them as a means for getting your hair done. But you don't treat them as mere means, right? You're not treating them as non-humans. So, so the so the idea behind this is that no matter how much hatred you feel for someone, they're still a person, and their personhood has to be respected, even if you don't feel like it, even if you don't want to. Right, and this is right. This is uh, where Kant comes in, and 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 that these emotions, it doesn't matter what we feel, we have to do it because it's the right thing, and so so hate that inspires us to dehumanize to 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 violate someone's personhood is is never justified and it's it's the depersonalization it's the dehumanization that is never justified and so that that actually makes me wonder and this doesn't really come up in the book but war right one of the things that 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 um countries do when they're at war with other countries is teach their soldiers to hate the other side, because that dehumanization makes it easier to kill the enemy. Are you mm -hmm. suggesting then that it is immoral to use hatred as a tool for war? That 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 hatred, since it since dehumanization stops hatred from being justified, then hatred as as a as a as a war tactic is just as unjustified then I think you both and I, you and I would both agree that rape is a war tactic is unjustified. Um, and the genocide yeah. is a war, right. So that, that hatred too is unjustified, even if it makes the soldiers uh, more comfortable with killing the enemy. I think that, um, the way that soldiers typically are taught to hate is, is wrong. So by using uh, ways to make ma ways of making them see the enemy as less than human is wrong for the same reason than that the 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 methods used in uh, in wars that involve genocide and so on um, is wrong. So can you uh, achieve the same? I and mean, war is war. You can be a pacifist, or you can be say that that maybe sometimes war. Is justified. So um, let's just assume that you think that war is justified. You could still achieve the same effect um, by not by teaching uh, your soldiers that the enemy is less than human, but by uh, teaching them that there might be situations where you are actually in a position of. Um, self-defense, where self-defense um, doesn't necessarily involve hatred. Um, in fact, the people that you're killing, um, you don't know the people, um, the soldiers uh, that are killing other people, the the enemies, they don't know them. Uh, so in this case, it can't be justified to hate to hate them. Uh, hatred is the is the wrong emotion in that case. Um, but self-defense uh, might involve killing uh, the enemy. And clearly, uh, war, in some sense, has to be about self-defense. Otherwise, it's not justified, right? So you don't just um, decide to start a war because you want to expand. So we, we don't just uh, decide to, to start a war in Canada, for example, because we decide that the United States would want to be bigger, so we want to 
take over Canada. Um, that wouldn't be justified war. Um, so in, when 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 we if war is justified, it has to be because it's it's a kind of self defense. Sometimes perhaps it's self defense um, that goes beyond, of course, the individual. Right? War would be perhaps self defense um, as a country, but what hatred is 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 actually the wrong thing, and it's what you see in the wars that that have led to genocide. Um, that's that's genuine hatred that you have in those cases. Um, when when you um, when you see you, I suppose that that there is a kind of hatred that you can have towards institutions, and I do I don't talk about that too much in in the book because it's a different kind of it's a different kind of emotion that you would have towards institutions, um, and I'm not sure um, that it's the same kind of emotion. So of course you can hate a, a country. So if a country attacks you. Um, so say that uh, Russia suddenly decided to attack America and um, and you might have a certain hatred towards the institution, but that doesn't mean that you would hate the Russians, right? The individual people who have uh, presumably have nothing to do with, with that attack. So I would say that hatred is, is the wrong, um, it's, it's the wrong emotion in, in those cases. And it's the kind of emotion that has led to those terrible um things that that we have seen like during uh the holocaust uh during various genocides uh both before and after that this is tremendously relevant and if if there's a second edition of the book it would be really nice for you to add a chapter because this is uh, what the black lives matter debate and the defund the police debate is very much about right you can you can hate the police as an institution and still recognize that there are good police officers and still treat individual police officers with respect, but still want to defund and, and, and critique. And so a lot of the protesters now who would describe their relationship with a lot of the institutions in the United States as hatred, um, they can still hate the institution and not the individuals. And then maybe, as you're suggesting, we might want to find a different word or understand hate in a different way. So I think that's tremendously interesting. It also leads to the next question, which is, what then goes wrong with group hate? Because you spend a tremendous amount of time in the book, and it's it's uh, you talk about abusive relationships. I guess abusive relationships isn't group hate, but you talk about abusive relationships. You talk about mis misogyny. You talk about racism. You talk about anti-Semitism. Uh, you talk about the hate groups, what we call hate groups now, and and white supremacists and things like that. Is it is it just impossible by definition or structurally impossible for a group that hates? to meet the conditions of justifiable hatred that you've talked about? Do, do all the groups necessarily want retaliation and, and dehumanization? Is it just, it's just once you get on the group level, you just can't meet those conditions? What's going on there? I think, I think there's uh, more than that going on. So if we go back to the police that you were just talking about, defunding the police, um, you may you may uh, hate an institution, but you can't hate um, the whole group, which would be a group that would involve all po police officers, um, even if you limit it to to police officers who currently exist, meaning the present group of police officers. It would be um, 
it would just be be uh, a fallacy of of general generalizing right from uh from from some bad uh maybe many bad um people to a whole group of people uh hating the institution is is different um i do say in in the um at the very beginning of the book that i'm not going to talk about hatred towards entities or things uh which would go from from hating um um various practices or institutions hating uh discrimination for example hating that um that that black uh, black women are still paid uh um uh something like 15 cents per 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 one dollar that is paid to 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 an average white person something like that right so so those are institutions and systems that you can hate and and the book is not about that it's about it's, it's about personal hate and about group hate and so hate by hating a group um you are in you're hating everyone in that group you, you're not making exceptions because you by hating a group you're hating the the members of the group so you're hating people that you don't really know even if you know know even if you happen to know half of that group you, you wouldn't know half of that group but she's knew 10 percent of that group right so you knew 10 percent of the say police force um then you don't know the whole group so you can hate the institution but you cannot hate the group because that's just that's that's a fallacy the same fallacy as if you um you see enough white swans uh you you, you conclude that all swans are are, are are white that's of course a mistake a logical mistake um because there are swans that are black just because you haven't seen them doesn't mean that uh that's the case and so one thing that goes wrong um, at the level of group hate is that you are making a logical fallacy by generalizing from uh, individuals that you have encountered to all individuals in that group. And you can't do that. I mean, that's a logical fallacy. And so that's the first part um, of what goes wrong. And then, we, of course, we can add the re retaliation and dehumanization that often comes along with group hate because... Um, I make a lot of uh, I talk a lot about how groups um, act in terms of their psychology and how groups often um, the the their viewpoints or their um, their joint cause often escalates because of the psychology of groups. So groups uh, work in ways that make them more and more hateful. If hate is is a starting point, uh, then if that's what drives the group, then you will tend to become more and more hateful. And so your hatred will eventually become dehumanizing or become something that would be involved revenge or retaliation. Um, so, so there are many reasons, but the very first one would be, you can't just generalize. You can't just uh, like look at 10 people um, who Suppose you know ten people who are in high school and they are very bad people, and so then you end up hating everyone who go, who attends high school. I mean that that's kind of like the fallacy that's involved in group hate, uh, for starters. So so, and I've known people, um, including you know people who, I mean, especially older generation folks who who will use, who will try to work around this like they'll they'll say 
terrible things about um, black people, but they'll say, but their friend Jim, who they works with, is great, or the gardener who they work with is great, or the banker who they met was great. That that you know the abstract black person who they have in their mind, they are racist against, they hate, but 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 the individual, they're okay with. Is that? Are they just kidding themselves, right? Is that still an instance of group hate and it's still unjustifiable? Are they struggling with what you're talking about? Or is there something yeah. inherently abstract about about group hate that that, that is, is beyond this little interaction? Well, there's something abstract about it uh, because you're hating a group um, where you don't actually know even a fraction, I mean, you, you know, a very small fraction of the members of that group. So if you have hatred towards black people, um, then you are hating, yeah, something that's very abstract to you. It's very concrete, of course, because these are, there's, there's really a group with real people in it, but you are not hating the group on the basis of the members. So in that sense, it's abstract. But it's really just uh, a fallacy of... of of taking, in this case that you mentioned, it would be a certain stereotype, right? That that is fueling your hatred. So it's not um, you encounter with uh, one bad person. So in the police case, presumably, if you the defunding the, the police um, started with hatred towards um, some people um, that uh, actually justifiably deserve to be hated in the police force, right? Um, but then you generalize to to all of the police force, which is a mistake. Um, in the example of someone who hates blacks because of a certain stereotype, and the stereotypes can be uh, different stereotypes about blacks, but maybe it's a, um, uh, a stereotype about uh, the black woman uh, who is lazy and on food stamps, uh, for example. And if th that stereotype, stereotypes are uh, obviously uh, false. I mean, they're, they're, I can't think of a, a single stereotype about any group um, that, that happens to be true, right? So stereotypes are, are something false. They're like myth in some sense. Um, so stories that, that are told to other people though, that we tell ourselves. And... And then the person who hates blacks, based on that stereotype, uh, has absolute ha doesn't even have the starting foundation or the, the starting uh, example of that that can uh, justify the hatred. And then the person is furthermore generalizing, right? The stereotype, of course, is already about all blacks, but then generalizing about all blacks. And then furthermore is then saying, oh, but I'm working with uh, with this black person who's who's really cool. Um, so there's a, a, a number of, uh, inconsistencies, uh, in, in that, um, viewpoint, right. In that person is probably suffering from cognitive dissonance, which, which can be destructive in and of itself. Um, and, and, um, and that's sometimes what's going on in the case of, uh, racism, um, is is a kind of cognitive dissonance um but on many different levels so so that was one level that we were talking about and there's another level where perhaps you did meet a bad person who belongs to a certain group 
uh, but then you generalize to the whole group, which um, is not something that's um, logical to, to do either. I wonder if you'd talk for a minute about misogyny specifically. You have a fascinating chapter um, in which you try to articulate uh, the causes of misogyny, not in the, causes is the wrong word, but the, the sort of the justifications and, and, and you identify two different areas in which um, misogynists justify hating women. And what's particularly interesting is that you also talk about women who, women who hate women, that it's not just men who hate women, but, but that, that, that there are women um, who hate their own group. What is it about what's going on and, and why is there such, especially, I mean, you, you talk about the American context, but obviously this is a tremendously old prejudice. Um, what's going on with misogyny? Because I think your account of it offers a really nice example of how you want people to start to deconstruct why groups hate, why people hate particular groups, what, what group hate is, and the things that you have to realize and undermine in order to get out of that trap. So, so, so if you wouldn't mind talking just a little bit about your analysis of, 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 of what justifies misogyny. Yeah, so misogyny, of course, is not um, justified, but what, what justifies it in the minds of those, right. um, yeah, who perform uh, those acts. So I distinguish between two forms of misogyny. So there's sort of the the contemptuous form of misogyny, which um, is the tendency uh, in the population to uh, think that, that women are uh, not as good as men when it comes to, to certain things. Uh, for example, uh, say logic, um, finance. Uh, I, I don't mention those examples specifically, but there are certain kinds of things that are uh, something that classically have been men's uh, domains, right? Politics, um, like the stock markets, uh, and so on. Something having to do with being rational, um, being um, um, having a lot of knowledge, um, being an intellectual, um, and so on. Whereas, of course, um, according to, to that picture, women also had their domains, so they would be good at taking care of children. They might be good school teachers because that involves, in, in some sense, taking care of children um, and so on. So that's sort of uh, a, a kind of default uh, misogyny that still exists in, uh, in society. It's the kind of misogyny that you might not notice um, because... It's not. Um, it's contempt. It's more like contemptuous. It's sort of taking women to be just not quite on the same level as men. And then there's hateful misogyny, which is um, the kind of misogyny that uh, most people discuss when they talk about misogyny, which is when you actually uh, react towards uh, certain women and um, the women that you react to. Um, um, according to to um, the hateful mis misogyny, are women who do not live up to your picture of what women should be. So, um, so yeah, you can nowadays it might be fine that to see a woman have try to have a career, 
uh, even um, trying to get up the career ladder a little bit. Um, but don't get too far, right? Don't, women shouldn't get too far out. You shouldn't get too far up the hierarchy. So if you look at, at uh, some of the bad comments that some people make about Kamala Harris, um, part of that is misogyny because she went too far, right? She um, uh, was chosen and accepted as the candidate uh, vice president, uh, right? In and and so so she's gotten uh, too far. Now she may never become the vice president because Trump might win win the election, um, but. I am predicting that the misogyny will increase <clears throat> incredibly if Biden does win um, towards Kamala Harris, because she, uh, she then would be an example. I mean, she would, would also have uh, another problem, uh, namely that she's black, according to, to some people, that would be a further problem. But just that she's a woman, uh, she's sort of overstepping her bounds. She's going too far out of what a woman should be doing and so that's a kind of hateful uh, misogyny and uh, often misogyny comes in the form of comments um, right so, so comments on blogs or comments in uh, in the media um, uh, and it, sometimes it comes in in the form of actions so um, I mentioned the, the example of someone who uh, at a cafe in France um, did some cat calling towards a woman and the woman said that uh, basically that he should um, <clears throat> not do that and he took an ashtray and threw it in her face, right? Um, so sometimes it's like physical violence towards women, uh, but often it's, it's, um, it's, it's just a, yeah, verbal, verbal criticism of women that, that don't, um, comply with the standard that uh, that men and some women uh, think that, that women should comply with. So what what what's what stuck out um, to me in this discussion was this idea that um, you were talking about the you, you were deconstructing the misogyny and you were talking about how there's a notion of femininity that America in particular has, that when women are not suitably feminine, they are looked at with contempt. And that also that for some people, um, there's a notion of, of dirtiness, of filth that come with women that, that get tied in with their bodies and with their behaviors. And that in a certain sense, misogyny is, you know, a formula of contempt of feminine, uh, femininity plus disgust at filth. Both just un both unjustified, of course. And I guess the last question I want to ask is: Is there a generic, for lack of a better way of asking the question, is there a generic formula for hatred? Is 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 hatred? Is there a platonic form of hatred where hatred really is the same thing regardless of who the target is, or is hatred nuanced enough? that hatred of women is not just quantitatively, but qualitatively different than ha hatred of African-Americans, than hatred of Jews, than hatred of, I don't know, Estonians, of hatred of whatever. Um, is there a core, a sort of universal core that we can use when we're trying to identify hatred? Or is hatred really contextual and you really just have to unpack the narrative, the tradition, 
the the stereotypes, the, the the all that sort of stuff in order to make sense of it when you're talking about it in regards to a particular group. What fuels the hatred uh, is going to be a little bit different in many cases. Uh, the feminine filth that I talk about with respect to misogyny, um, that kind of the idea of filth, uh, you'll see that too as as is also a motivator uh, of hatred of blacks to to some extent. Uh, there are so many stereotypes uh, about blacks that that's just one of them. Whereas for women, it's more clear that there's clearly this filth related um, myth about women um, or. So it's an association, right? Women are filthy because uh, they are connected with childbirth, with menstruation, um, and so on and so on. Um, but that I think that that uh, a similar uh, or very related uh, myth of filthiness has also been um, dominating um, both white supremacy and and sort of the, the, the racism that's more population-wide um, towards blacks, right? So you definitely see when, when, it was more, when racism was more explicit. And if you go back in the literature and you see some more explicit ways of talking about blacks, that's definitely using some of the same um, terms uh, and phrases to talk about blacks as filthy that that are very similar to the way that misogynists um, in the old literature talk about women as as being filthy so it can be um, different different um, they can be the same right some of the same things that fuels the hatred but I would say that uh, if you look at at the hatred of Jews in the United States today. It has changed, of course, over the years, but right now, if you look at, um, and I had to go in uh, and look at, at some of the very worst blocks uh, with people hating Jews in order to write this book. Um, and they write these things about uh, Jewish people, but you can see that part of <clears throat> what um, motivates the hatred of Jews is actually a form of envy because it happens to be the case that Jewish people in this country uh, on average have done um, on average a little bit better right than other groups so um, so it seems to be driven by a kind of envy that I don't think that envy is a motivator in misogyny except when it comes to women hating other women there you can also have envy um and that is one of the the categories i talk about in misogyny but for for uh people hating jews today there's definitely envy driving that um and then of course drawing on 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 historical stereotypes in order to uh not come across as if it's just envy that drives it but i think that is definitely clear that uh the higher iq and average um um, which is an established fact of, Jew, of, of Jewish people, but also the success in terms of um, being more successful uh, in media, uh, in, in uh, academia, in, in areas that have those good qualities uh, that white men traditionally sort of um, 
owned right so so academia belongs to like white men and of course i think that that uh when i'm saying white men i'm i'm speaking uh from the perspective of of the hate groups that don't consider jews uh white so the white men uh owned academia they owned the media they owned um um the banks and so on um and so so there's definitely that kind of envy in in um, in the in the hatred of, of Jews uh, that you don't necessarily find in say misogyny and I don't see it either well occasionally also for black people but mostly it's driven by other things than than uh, envy. So I, it would be really interesting and and a whole other uh, episode to talk about the role of admiration and in, in, in racism and and fetishization and all of these other things that come with with so-called positive attitudes about the other. But we are out of time, and I want to thank you so much for having this conversation. It's a very complicated and very difficult conversation to have, and I really appreciate you guiding us through it. Well, thanks for the great questions. You've been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein and Britt Borgard on Why Philosophical Discussion About Everyday Life. I will be back with a few more thoughts right after this. Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We were talking with Britt Borgard about hatred and the philosophical exploration of all of its nuances. You know, this is a difficult conversation to have, not just because it's subtle, but because it involves articulating things we don't want to say. When you're trying to analyze hatred, you have to talk about the kind of things that people say when they are hating people. You have to talk about stereotypes. You have to talk about insults. You have to talk about terrible aspects of the human personality. And how do you do that without perpetuating the stereotype? How do you acknowledge what's been going on without, you know, just repeating ugliness? And philosophy tries to do that by focusing on families of concepts, by saying that hatred is a mixture of contempt and desire for retaliation, or hatred involves disgust and suspicion and envy. And this isn't just sort of defining problems away. It's an attempt to get a sense of universality that we can figure out what's right and what's wrong. Right? Britt said during the conversation that part of what's wrong with collective hate is that it relies on a logical fallacy, the fallacy of generalization, that it's what, what's true of one thing is true of everything. So my tennis ball is green, therefore all tennis balls are green. Uh, the mugger who mugged me had red hair, therefore all people with red hair are muggers. Right? The power of this 
is that it allows us to see the patterns that people rely on to make the mistakes that they make in life. And hate is almost always a mistake. But there are times when it's not. There are times when it's perfectly justifiable to hate someone and perfectly healthy to hate someone because it helps us deal with the horrors of our lives and sometimes the victimhood that we have to struggle through. But if hate is impermanent, if hate is a transition in our lives, if hate does not involve dehumanizing someone or demanding retribution, and still we are still capable of recognizing that there are aspects of them that need to be respected, then we can hate and we are better off because of it. And maybe they will be better off too because they will see our emotions, they will feel our hatred, and maybe possibly they can learn something. Hate is not irredeemable. It is only so most of the time. Sometimes hate is very useful, and sometimes hate is justifiable. And the fact that that's true is something worth hating in and of itself. You've been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Thank you for listening. As always, it's an honor to be with you. Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album Louis E. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzfluteweinstein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower. <laughs>